You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi, friends, and welcome. Thank you for being here. This is a solo episode. There won't be anyone joining me today. I want to thank those of you who voted on my Instagram story. If you're not yet following me there and would like to, I'm at man underscore overseas. What I asked was how often would listeners like me to do a solo show? The options were once a month, once a quarter, once a year, and never. Once a month and once a quarter actually tied. So I will be doing more of these. If you have a question and don't mind your name and question read on the podcast, shoot me a DM. I will be answering a few questions today. On June 19th, I turned 40. The night before, Lady Yo suggested that I do a top 40 list for the blog. So what I wrote was top 40 pieces of advice I would give to 20-year-old me. And the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. Well, now that I think about it, there hasn't been any negative feedback. Some readers sent messages asking for me to expound on some of the advice, which I plan to do today. Others sent how they would add to the list. So, for example, one reader said, I'm not 40 yet, but said he would add, be fascinated by human nature and the state of the world rather than judging it. Adding that people get bent out of shape by how things are versus how they should be. But if you step back and observe, the world truly is fascinating. That was sent to me by future guest on the show, Eddie Romanzo. (laughs) He's got a great point. I actually mentioned being fascinated instead of frustrated when things happen that are outside your control and the need for continuous study of human nature. But I didn't connect them in the way that he did quite well, I might add. I didn't tell him this, but I felt constricted by a list of 40. That night I wrote the list, I got quote-unquote in the zone, as I tell my wife, and when I finally went to bed, it was 2.30 a.m., and I had a list of 68 pieces of advice. So the next morning, I asked my wife to help me cut the list down, and it was hard to do because I liked 60 of them. (laughs) Obviously, it was my list. I wouldn't have come up with them, I guess, if I didn't like them, but that stuff just flowed out of me. But a more expansive list would have included something about our tendency as humans to suffer a sort of self-imposed misery, and much of it due to the vast difference between our expectations versus reality. And for some, this misery, mostly self-inflicted but not always, takes the form of stress or high anxiety. Maybe there are feelings of I'm not good enough, or I'm 30 years old, I'm not where I thought I would be. Or at 40, we call it a midlife crisis, which can be heavily influenced by This is not where I expected to be. Maybe you're still living in your quote-unquote starter home. Whatever the hell that means. (laughs) Take it from someone with a realtor designation. The idea of you buying a starter home, and it's usually ladies I hear using this term, that may just be a marketing gimmick. It would not surprise me at all if someone in the real estate industry subtly snuck that into popular vernacular. To, open, to, to get you to open your wallet for the next biggest purchase you'll ever make. And, you know, realtor folks get part of the deal on the sell side, the, the buy side. 
Just throwing that out there. Just beware the idea of a starter home may have been implanted in our brains. Us men are no better. Thinking an engagement ring requires two months salary. Last I heard it was three months. And I'm sure by the time this airs, it'll be four months salary that you need to be spending on a ring. It's ridiculous. Speaking of putting words together to get us to spend money, have you bought a Hallmark card lately? I think it was $13 for the card. And now the envelope costs what the card used to cost. I cannot wait until I have kids. We'll have fun making cards with Elmer's glue and some construction paper. I'm convinced it's the same people who poo-poo special interests all the time that have their own special interests, like the growth in greeting cards gone wild, or the gratuitous growth in gratuities we're seeing nowadays. Tipping has gone from 10% to 15% to 20 and 25%. As the cool kids are saying nowadays, miss me with that shit. We spent the last month in the Riviera Maya, part of Mexico. They had never heard of a tip until we Americans began imposing our culture on them. So now they want what they call a propina. And they want a rather large one. The standard propina about five years ago was 10%. Now, before you go boasting about your generosity, well, man, you know, when we go, we like to give 30% because those people have families to support and the average wage is only, hey, don't lecture me with that. I promise you, I understand. I've been to the most impoverished parts of the world. And you know what? Those people in Mexico get on just fine with their standard of living, and they seem rather contented to me, which is more than I can say for many Americans. Are we to import our pharmaceuticals there, too? Our antidepressant medicines, once they start competing to keep up with the Gonzaleses because of an extreme chase of materialism? Don't impose your culture on the places you visit. We should be adapting ourselves to theirs. It's called respect. Sometimes this incessant need to think well of ourselves becomes all-consuming. And hey, next thing you know, you've westernized the entire world in your image. Congratulations. You have nowhere different to visit now. Have you even thought it through? You haven't. I got in an argument with the most popular blogger in Mexico recently. He's a former police officer in Florida, retired very young. He and his lovely wife moved down to Acumal, Mexico. They're living the expat dream in the Riviera Maya. He was able to do that because the cost of living in Mexico is much cheaper than in Florida. Now that he's living in Mexico, do you know what he encourages his readers to tip? 35% at restaurants and resorts. His reason? Well, those people have families and we're just so blessed or whatever. You know what happens when he does that? When hundreds of thousands, if not millions of his readers, I believe his blog hit a million readers this year. Do you know what happens when you start tipping 35% in Mexico? It raises the cost for everybody because human nature is such that over time, those receiving 35% tips will start to expect bigger and bigger tips. And I've seen this in action over the last five years. The last restaurant we visited for my birthday on June 19th, they had pre-written a 15% add-on to the check. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. And you know what happens at resorts? The worker might know 10 words of English. Four of them are, where are you from? If you say that you're from the Netherlands or Germany, you are, you are getting terrible service because they don't have a tipping culture in, in Europe. 
the worker in Mexico isn't stupid. He's going to happily serve the dummy who's tipping him enough to pay half his rent that month. What this blogger is doing, I call it Warren Buffett politics, which is once you climb the beautiful ladder that is America, you get to the top and you leave your ass sticking out in the air. And that's just to show the people who haven't made it yet what they can kiss. Then slowly pull up the ladder so nobody else can join you. And it's a goddamn shame. Many Americans who would have been able to retire in Mexico now can't afford it. Because all those Americans who went first in their continuous struggle to think well of themselves started tipping 35% and throwing their money around and boasting about it on the Internet. The year 2032, retiring in Acumal will cost the same as it costs to retire in Destin, Florida. You know what his last response was to me, this blogger fella? Well, like I used to say when I was a police officer, you've got to do what you think is right. No, bro. You're not doing what you think is right. You're doing what you feel is right. You haven't thought it through at all. I was talking about when life isn't meeting expectations. I'll tell you a story. A few years ago, a buddy of mine turned 35, and I called him and said, man, how does it feel to be 35? He said, I'm kind of bummed to tell you the truth. I said, oh, man, what's troubling you? He said, I don't know. I just thought 35 would be different. I said, different how? He said, well, it just feels like I should have accomplished more by now, I guess. I said, well, why do you feel that way? What's on your list of goals? What did you want to accomplish? He said he didn't have a list of goals. Now, the way I see it, he didn't have a right to be down on himself. He didn't know what he wanted to accomplish anyway. Why would the good Lord see to it that he hit a target that didn't exist? So I said, look, man, you're you're not going to get any sympathy from me. You aim at nothing. The universe has an extraordinary way of making sure you get what you aim for. But remember how this feels today because you're going to feel the exact same way when you turn 40, except it's going to feel worse. You've got to put in the work. He said, what do you mean? Dude, I work hard. I work my ass off. I said, that's not the work I'm talking about. You remember Jim Rohn said, you work hard on your job, you'll make a living. But if you work hard on yourself, you make a fortune. I'm talking about the work of sitting down with your journal for 90 minutes and writing out what you want the next five years to look like. What is it that you want to accomplish? You'll be amazed at how balls start bouncing in your favor when you have a plan and you can get your reticular activator system on high alert. I've talked about this before, but in case you've never heard of a reticular activator system, when your wife is pregnant, you see pregnant women everywhere. When you buy a blue GMC Sierra, you start seeing those everywhere. So many data points on my list are interconnected. For example, number 34 says two things to study continuously, communication and human nature. You make human nature a study because it will make you a calmer and more strategic observer of people. Well, included in people is you. You've got to study yourself. You've got to know yourself. The best way to do this and be objective about it is number one on the list. Keep a journal. There are many more benefits of journaling than I have time to share today. But what I said in the post was that your mind will adjust memories to make them consistent with your current circumstances. You'll want to look back and see what you thought was a big deal, what you believed and what you predicted at the time. This exercise alone of going back and looking at what you thought was going to be important now and now seeing that it couldn't be more unimportant to your current circumstances, that is invaluable information to have. 
this aspect of keeping a journal really gives you an easier walk through the world to be able to see in your own handwriting that you thought not getting that promotion would be the end of your career or that girl that got away or that guy. Wouldn't it be helpful to see what you were thinking at the time you did let them go? That encounter in 2015 that you couldn't believe or 2017 or at the start of 2018, it'd all be written there for you. Looking back to see how strongly you felt back then and how little impact those strong feelings have on your life now. I'm telling you, it'll have you singing Garth Brooks in the shower, thanking the man above for unanswered prayers. You dodged a bullet, which calls for more gratitude in your life, does it not? I love how flipping through journals reinforces the transience of things, how life is impermanent, all the thoughts and emotions that we experience come and go. And that's what's happening. We're experiencing emotion. What you think is a big deal now more than likely will not matter 14 months from now. Anytime I can flip through my journals to find an experience from my past that makes me pause and think, wow, that was so important to me at the time. I get these feelings of gratitude that sweep over me. For one, having written it down. Two, for things for things to turn out how they did, which is contrary to how I had hoped at the time. And then three, I'm wiser for it moving forward because you will face a similar situation again. And next time, you will manage it with more poise and more confidence, more clarity. Because you didn't just have a similar experience in the past, you captured it on paper, which enabled you to study it. Writing is thinking, and thinking enables you to examine circumstances in your life from different angles. This is how you become a student of your own life. This is what growth looks like. 400 years before Christ, Socrates at his own trial was given a choice. Would he choose death or would he choose exile in Athens? Commit to a life of total silence. Those were his options. The man chose death. And then he said, the unexamined life is not worth living. He believed what elevates our existence above that of beasts is our highly developed faculty of thought. Think about that. Yeah, I turned 35 years old today and I just, I don't feel like I'm where I should be. Okay, dude, well, show me your work. My longer list of advice to my 20-year-old self, I believe it was number 53 to 56, which by no means was it less important. I just needed help cutting it down. I mean, I, I liked so much of my advice I, I may use it, you know, repurpose it for a future blog post or something, but it had something to do with getting familiar with the human tendencies that prevent people from appreciating the present moment. That's what I would want my 20-year-old 20, 20 self to know. Why is it that most of us do not live in the now? Why don't we make an effort to absorb ourselves in the moment, whatever is in front of us right now? I'm convinced it's because we don't understand the power of now. And I really began to, to believe this when I read The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Reading and thinking go hand in hand. 
And unfortunately, we're not reading nearly as much as we used to. The power of now should be required reading in all schools. Instead, our, our kids will be learning about white privilege. Can you imagine faculty and staff getting together and, and deciding that Eckhart Tolle and Nassim Taleb wouldn't, wouldn't benefit them as much as something like white fragility? If you had college kids reading Tolle and Taleb, they would develop mental coping skills and enhance their reasoning faculties so that they graduate with a resilient mind. They'd be capable of distinguishing between thought and feeling. They will have studied and understood the consequences of what can happen across the USA when emotions overwhelm our intellect. They need to be taught that emotions cloud reason. This is so important in a young person's development. How are you empowering young people by giving them trigger warnings and telling them to be hyper aware of microaggressions? Is it so that they can tattletale? You remember tattletaling when we were kids? It was frowned upon. Now we have people winning social status for being the most victimized by words. These people search for words to be offended by. Then as a self-proclaimed victim, they start a Twitter mob. And they pile on and they pile on. What they hope for is that the person's employer fires them so that they can no longer support their families for words that were said that this victim took offense to. That's what cancel culture is. It's disgusting. It is the weakest members of our society trying to end someone's ability to support themselves and their families because of something that was said that they don't like. And if you've got a spineless employer, they will heed the call of the mob and effectively end that person's career. It's sick. We need to bring back the stigma attached to tattletaling. When I was a kid, we were taught to suck it up, that sticks and stones may break my bones but everybody remembers the rest of that phrase. Every one of you listening knows it because cliches and little phrases like sticks and stones have withstood the test of time for a reason. We internalize them so that when a bully calls us a name, we can flash that phrase in our minds. It's, it stays with us. We live by it. That's how you equip young people with the tools to handle Things like online mobs, which are just bullies by another name. The end of the phrase, of course, is, but words will never hurt me. Never. They'll never hurt me. That's empowering. Do you think you're helping young people by providing safe spaces? No. You're, you're coddling them, which is harming the future of our great country more than it's helping. We need to get back to character development, where the aim should be anti-fragility teaching young people to be strong and mentally tough and to think for themselves and do not apologize to the mob if you didn't do anything wrong. I can think of a lot of things that we weren't taught in school that would have been helpful later in life, like taxes, mortgages, personal finance, male-female differences, proper nutrition. But the big one is we're not taught how to think. Too many college kids are taught what to think instead of how to think. 
and they come out of college thinking they know it all. And back to human nature, number 34 on the list. People get used to being taught what to think, just as Mexicans get used to 35% tips from gringos. On a long enough timeline of having your thinking done for you, thinking becomes involuntary. It's automatic and repetitive. I see people doing no thinking for themselves these days. Not everybody, but a large swath of the young people in our country are not thinking for themselves. Instead, they regurgitate what they've been told to think. And even if they do happen upon a thought of their own, their thinking is is something that happens to them. Remember point number 25, everybody wants to improve their life, but nobody... How does it go? I don't even remember my own point. Everyone wants their life to improve, but not everyone wants to improve their life. Well, you might say everyone wants their thinking to improve, but nobody wants to do the thinking. We call it the directing mind for a reason. You as director, the one in control. When you hear someone say, I can't stop thinking about, that's a reveal, a subtle reveal that they may have lost control of their directing mind. The thought has a hold of them instead of them directing the thinker. Whereas I think implies volition, the power of one's will. Most people aren't there yet. They're at the mercy of the voice in their head instead that wants to replay the past over and over. They know this doesn't serve them, but their mind is out of control. And an out of control mind can easily be taught what to think. It's easy to feed that person information for regurgitation. These same individuals become a slave to their mind and never learn to use the mind as the powerful tool that it is. It's the most powerful tool on earth. When you can direct it, when you have this sort of control and can use your mind as a tool, you can stop yourself at any time and intensely focus on the present. When you're entirely present state focused, fully in awareness, all your worries, all your stresses, all your anxieties, they go away. Poof. Let me repeat that because it's it's too important to miss. The way to erase all your pain, all the memories of the past, all the worries about the future, the stress and anxieties that plague so many of us on a daily basis, the way to get rid of that is to absorb yourself in the power of right now. I'm no guru. I'm no spiritual leader. I'm just sharing what makes sense and what works. I'm very practical in that way. That awful place we too often occupy between reality and what is reality. It's what Eddie talked about that's so delightful. If you just took time and and step back and observe reality, the beauty is indescribable. We're on a beautiful spinning rock in the middle of nowhere for a limited amount of time. But while here, we're given the opportunity to love and learn and laugh and swim and sleep and travel and be everything that we can possibly be. But we get caught up in how we think our lives should be. We've got all these expectations, which bring on unwanted thoughts and emotions. So then you're let down. You're caught between this amazing reality which we should be infinitely grateful for, and delusional expectations. And some of us don't even know how they got there. Where did these expectations come from? 
Well, if you're not a student of your experience and you don't know thyself because you're not doing what's number one on the list, keeping a journal, big expectations can seep their way into your worldview without you even noticing. And I'm going to keep beating this dead horse, but if, if you keep a journal, you'll have you'll have taken the first step in reclaiming control of your directing mind. I don't care if you make fun of me for keeping a diary like a teenage girl. I don't care if you think that I'm old-fashioned for using a pen and paper. There are too many benefits from regular introspection that I, there's, it's not possible for me to care one iota what anybody thinks about me regularly writing in a journal. There's just too much upside. I'm competing with myself. I want to be better than the 39-year-old version of me. And I encourage you to do it too. That's why I put it number one. Nothing else is in order, but that had to be number one. You're effectively equipping yourself with a tool to become a much better thinker. When you become a better thinker, your walk through the world becomes so much easier and so much better. Just by writing your thoughts down, your thoughts become more organized. Your thinking becomes more clear. I, under- I understand the world can be overwhelming at times, especially since much of what happens in this life is out of our control. But a journal is the best tool I know to deal with the overwhelm. Writing helps to simplify the world. It forces what we should be doing periodically anyway, which is taking time out for solitude and reflection. We could all use a little more introspection. We could all benefit from an improved ability to process emotions or doing what Tim Ferriss calls vomiting on the page. It's clearing the mechanism. We could all use little reminders such as a quote that I wrote in my journal in 2004. It says, comparison is the thief of joy. Teddy Roosevelt said that a hundred years ago, and I would venture a guess to say that it's more valuable today than it was when he said it a hundred years ago. And it's more helpful to a 20 something now in the age of Instagram than it was in 2004. It's what makes these sorts of quotes timeless, that they can be used throughout every era. So I've been going back to that quote about once a year for 16 years. And by the time Instagram shows up, you know, 13 years in, I've internalized the quote. It's become part of who I am. So as soon as I see Instagram, I know that's a facade. I'm not going to play the comparison game. It's fake photoshopped lives. I wouldn't dare compare my life to anyone on there. Let me tell you a story. I was on a trip with a friend of mine one time. We were in Budapest, Hungary. He complained the entire trip. He hated the food. The women didn't want him. He explained that he was tired the whole time because jet lag is a bitch, as if I didn't know it. He was cold. He hated the rain. He was mad at himself because he didn't bring gloves. Said he wasn't there to spend money on clothes, so he wouldn't buy gloves but he wouldn't buy new ones. I got the sense that if his ex-girlfriend, who probably dumped him because he didn't know how to have a good time, if she wanted him back, he would have gotten on a, va- on a plane and cut his vacation short. He would have flown home early. Because from the minute he arrived at the Budapest airport, renting a car, he had problems with the guy behind the desk. He argued with the dude behind him in line at the hotel's front desk. I could hear him say, that's why your country's poor, bro. <laughs> because y'all are so dumb, bro. He was just in a bad mood the entire time. He had several arguments with people. We almost got into a fight. Do you know 
that he still posts pictures on social media to this day saying that it was the greatest trip ever. Hey, Joseph Wells, frequent guest on this podcast, asked me after I posted 40 pieces of advice, he said, what do you think is the best way to use something like this? Because it's obviously too much to remember. Do you pick a few things and start doing them and then come back? Do you read it quarterly? Those are great questions. I said to him, I know I'm beating the horse, which is no longer breathing, but a journal is where it starts. It's where you become a student of your own life. It's where you write down who you met and your interactions with people. Back to number 34 on the list. By taking to your journal, you are studying human nature after your interactions with them. Remember my blog post titled, Why You Should Keep a Journal? I'll read a passage from it. I said, anything you encounter in life that's worth remembering, write it down. It's one thing to hear or read an idea or quote that could serve you in the future. It's another thing to read or hear an idea or quote, then make the effort to write it down. Those words you've captured on paper will stick if you revisit them. And then over time, they'll be firmly etched in your mind. There are quotes I began internalizing in 2004 that have served as guiding principles. Before I share a quote with you, I just want to say this. What I'm about to read to you has served me more than any other quote I've ever internalized in my life. And I've internalized a lot of quotes. That quote says, make a rule of life never to regret and never to look back. Regret is an appalling waste of energy. You can't build on it. It's only good for wallowing in. That's Catherine Mansfeld. Do you think writing that quote in your journal might serve you in the future if you revisited it 16 times? I've been able to look at that quote once a year for 16 years. It served me in ways you can't imagine. If you think reading Roosevelt's quote once a year would benefit you, the one that says comparison is the thief of joy, write it down. Revisit it until it's firmly etched in your mind. Once it's there, you can flash that memorized quote anytime, and you will have developed new mental strength by doing that exercise. Comparing your life to somebody's Instagram is like watching Steve Kerr shoot baskets on the last dance. How many shots did Steve Kerr miss on the last dance? Instagram is like Steve Kerr on the last dance. They're not going to show you the hundreds, if not thousands of shots he missed. And those shots he does make, they're going to put a filter on it to make the light shine a little brighter. Maybe give him a golden tan to go with his bright blue eyes. As I said earlier, there's so much interplay between this life advice. Because by developing this ability to flash quotes in your head, you're also working on number 10 on the list, which is life is single player. All that you experience and how you experience it is a creation inside your own mind. Improve your experience by taking care of your mind. Number 31, happiness is your responsibility. If you're not happy now, you won't be happy when you get what you want. If you think you'll be happy when you get what Sally or Michael has, think again. Have you read Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert? Why not? Surely you've made happiness a study. I'll give you the cliff notes. Gilbert writes, we're motivated to interpret negative events in ways that minimize their impact. He calls the gap between what we predict and what we ultimately experience. He calls that the impact bias. Impact meaning the errors we make in estimating both the intensity and duration of our emotions. This phrase, impact bias, it characterizes how we experience the waning excitement over finally getting the girl or the guy 
or finally buying that three-story house that we've wanted or getting a chance to visit the island in the Gulf of Thailand that we saw Sally visited on Instagram a few years ago. Whatever it is, basically any object or event that we presume will make us happy. Do you think $200,000 a year would make you happy? I got news for you. You get used to your income real quick. Nick Luff said that on a previous podcast. Do you think a CEO title will lead to a contented life? Nope. It's been proven time and time again that it's not the top of the mountain that makes us happy. It's the climb to the top, which is great news since that's where we spend over 99% of our time, climbing. The time we spend celebrating our victories, which we should do, by the way, that amount of time amounts to less than 1% of our life experience. So that's why you've got to learn to love the process. That's where you live. You may predict a big income and prestigious title will make you happy, but you can rest assured there's just too much evidence that shows it will not. Gilbert's point, and it's a great one, otherwise I wouldn't be sharing it with you, is that although we may have high hopes of the hot new thing or destination making us happy, the impact bias suggests that it will certainly be less cool once we've obtained it and become even less cool in a shorter time than we imagine. Hey, I've made all these mistakes too. I asked earlier if we were going to start sending our antidepressants to Mexico. Because once you hop on the hedonistic treadmill, it's very hard to hit the stop button. Have you tried hitting the stop button on a treadmill while it's moving? It's not easy to do. How many of us, when it's time to buy our next vehicle, buy a cheaper one than we bought last time? I don't see it too often. Once this empty chase for materialism starts, the self-indulgence is hard to stop. You're going to need the next shiny thing and then the next. I had a buddy recently who had to evict a tenant. In the pile of trash she left behind, he found a printout of the new car she had purchased in December 2019. What she had done was traded in her vehicle, got $10,000 for it, which I probably would think is a nice car. She then bought a $40,000 car. The financing option she was given, even having traded in her $10,000 car, her options were 36 months, $1,200 a month, 48 months at $925 a month, or 60 months, which is five years for $762 a month. This same person could not afford to keep a roof over their head when COVID-19 hit. Think about what's unfolding in the world's wealthiest countries. Life expectancy, higher than it's ever been. Child mortality, basically eradicated. We have it so good that we use our leisure time to go looking for things to struggle with. Because as humans, we get fulfillment through struggle. So we do CrossFit and we run marathons. At least that's the sort of thing strong-minded people do. Well, what do weak-minded people do? Well, they make up enemies to fight. That's how they get their meaning and fulfillment. The demand for imaginary enemies right now far exceeds the supply. So we're battling racism and food insecurity. Nobody starves to death in America. Those who think people are literally dying of starvation in the U.S. need to heed number 24 on the list, which says spend time in other cultures as soon as possible. You'll be amazed at what you see in other countries and compare it to what we consider poverty in the U.S. It's relative poverty. We do not have poor people in the U.S. Gilbert's research shows that these mistakes of expectation can lead directly to mistakes in what we think will give us pleasure in the future. 
He calls it miswanting, forces bad decisions, which we want to avoid. It's this sort of research that leads me to believe that the most important character trait to have, if I could bestow one thing on every human, it would be gratitude. As our society becomes more secularized, it's not a coincidence we see more jealousy and resentment and less and less gratitude. The church, of course, teaches you to be content with what you have. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins. So we've got to be careful what we wish for and guard against engaging in wishful thinking all the time and attaching too many emotions to those wishes. There's no, there's no utopia out there to achieve. We're not good at predicting how something will make us feel in the future. And much of what we do is to please our future selves, is it not? Hey, a reason to be grateful. Number 13 on the list. A younger version of you worked hard so you could be where you are today. And too many Americans, rather than working hard now to please their future selves, make themselves miserable because they're comparing themselves to others and have wild expectations. We live in the era of me, the selfie generation, they call it. I want it now. A world where instant, instant gratification reigns supreme. Young guys in their early to mid-20s thinking they should be making $70,000 a year with one or none years of experience. Young ladies, mid to late 20s, expecting Hollywood movie love. It'd be bad enough if they wanted their life to be the storyline, but they want the top-tier man to go with it. <laughs> Great job, ripped physique, and they want the big old brains, too, so they can not only conquer the world, but make her laugh. <laughs> but if he's under six foot, forget it. Then they get a little older and they compromise. That's not to dismiss men in all this. Hell, we have trouble calling 27-year-old males men. We still call them guys. When you spend half your time playing video games, running around in a make-believe world and winning stupid prizes, it's kind of hard to call that dude a man, is it not? And he ends up compromising too. Hey, if you'll accept a, a little under six foot, I'll accept a little over 110 pounds. You want to go on a real date? <laughs> sure, what's that? <laughs> People generally don't know what they want. We mostly have mimetic desires. Are you familiar with mimetic theory? Mimetic theory was coined by René Girard, who was a French historian and philosopher of social science in the anthropological sense. Mimetic theory just suggests that human desire is not an autonomous process, but a collective one. We want things because other people want them. That's a big reason why I included number 24 on the list, spend time in other cultures. Because you need to know how much of your thinking is pure conditioning. I can't put a percentage on it, but let's just say if you, if you haven't spent time in other cultures, you will be astounded at how much you think and desire is just because of what those around you think and desire. Friends, I struggle with this too. On the blog, manoverseas.com, I have a section devoted to my favorite quotes. One of them is from Rainer Maria Wilkie. She said, Do not believe that he who seeks to comfort you lives untroubled among the simple and quiet words that sometimes do you good. His life has much difficulty and sadness and remains far behind yours. Were it otherwise, he would have never been able to find those words. I'll be candid with you. I haven't struggled with comparing myself to other people. I've, been, I've had a practice for many years of competing with myself. 
to make sure that this year's version is better than last year's version. I want my life to improve. I want my character to develop. So that's where my focus has been. But where I have struggled, I struggled with relationships. The last girl did this. The last girl did that. And it wasn't something that I expressed well. And if I had learned to better communicate, maybe I could have improved those relationships. But I'm not one to complain. And so I would let it eat at me instead and fester inside. And that's not a good idea. What I had a tendency to do was combine the one great thing that she was and the greatest part of her. And then by your fifth relationship, you're comparing someone to your greatest hits. I don't do puns here, but it's unfair to to the current person that you're with. No one can compete with the best of all your previous loves. It's impossible and it's unfair to the person. So it's on you to either become a better communicator, number 34 on the list, or learn to lower your expectations to where you're eventually living without any expectations at all. Buddhist wisdom says happiness is the absence of desire. It's worth contemplating. There's so much value to be extracted from different religions of the world. Religions are lindy, which is the theory that if something has been around a long time, you can be pretty damn sure it's going to be around a lot longer. Religions have withstood the test of time for a reason. They've been nearly indispensable throughout every era. Something to be said for that. People who mock religion are idiots. They're unwise. When you get to this point where you're living without expectations, it's all to the good pop. Number 36, get to acceptance as fast as possible. By acceptance, I mean welcome everything that happens in your life. I'll tell you what it feels like. It feels like getting a fat paycheck when you're 100% debt-free. All to the good pop. I believe acceptance to be the next logical step in the personal development quest. It's where everything that happens to you is met with acceptance. It's not easy to get there. I'm not yet fully there myself, but I've had enough taste of acceptance to know it is worth it when you get there. Prayer has played a huge role in the sense of gratitude and acceptance that I walk around with. I also understand prayer is not for everybody. Some of my best friends are agnostic. I love them just the same. As I always say, take from me what's useful and discard the rest. My ego isn't in the deal. Just sharing what I've learned from my own experience and my observations of others. I've also had a daily gratitude practice where I'm writing down three different things I'm grateful for every day in my journal. This is very easy to do. Obviously, anybody can do it. The problem with anything that's easy to do, it's easy not to do. And this is where disciplines and habits can really work in your favor. What disciplines and habits enable you to do is put your time investments on autopilot the same way you might put your money investments on autopilot. If you auto-invest into a 401k or you auto-invest by dollar cost averaging into index funds every month or every paycheck, you can auto-invest your time by pre-committing to do a certain amount of praying every day or journaling every day. Both have giant returns if you do them consistently over time. So you've got to start thinking like an investor. And when you do, I, I truly believe it's a cheat code for achieving your dreams. As an investor, the most important thing is how you allocate your capital. 
But as a human, as someone who wants to become more than they currently are and grow, just like you would grow a portfolio, how you allocate your time is going to be the most important thing. Imagine living with a sense of awe and, and appreciation for all of life's daily wonders. We all should be doing that. Granted, we're in good health. The old Buddhist wisdom is true. The man in good health desires a thousand things. The man who's sick desires only one thing. I'll do one more piece of life advice, and then I'll answer listener questions. Number 33 says, learn to negotiate. Make it a study. All those classes in school and not one of them taught you to negotiate, something you'll be doing the rest of your life. Why wouldn't school prepare you for the rest of your life? We'll leave that a mystery for now. But there's something I did in my 20s after I was finished school and my education started that had a huge impact on me and my development. The time I invested in this one activity benefited my career, my relationships, my investments, and what I learned continues to benefit me even today. Oh, and it helped me make a lot of money too. And what I'm going to share with you can benefit you also in helping you to increase your income and live a bigger life. In fact, that's why I'm doing this. Here's what I would do. I would pick a topic, something I was interested in learning, and I would make it a study. I would do this for six months at a time. And the reason I chose six months is because I was using the example of a semester. That's where I got the idea from. But choose however long you think it'll take you to master your chosen topic. You'll gain the equivalent of a degree or even a master's degree. We don't care about credentials. We want the knowledge. Self-directed learning accelerates the time it takes to gain mastery of a subject. And it does this for a few reasons I can think of. One, you'll better remember what you learn when it's self-directed. What you learn becomes a lot stickier when it's attached to an emotion. We know this. Well, a passion for learning, that's an emotion. Two, you can devote as much time as you want on a daily basis. You can jump ahead and not have to wait on the next class. Rather than a three-hour course per week, you can do 10, 12, 16 hours. And then after you've gained a mastery of the subject, at least to where you could teach a class on the material, the idea of showing up to a classroom for four to six years will seem preposterous. But all those years in college classrooms, gah, it wasn't wasted, though. Don't get me wrong. You'll never hear me say that my time in college classrooms was wasted. Because so much of what I did in college, I took with me into the real world. At least that which was useful, I'm greatly appreciative of. I'll give you a few examples. So I had to count costs in college because my baseball scholarship didn't cover late night runs to Taco Bell. It didn't cover trips to the acupuncturist when my back was, was bothering me. I didn't get the same support from my parents other kids had. And so I learned to play defense, financially speaking. The beauty of learning to negotiate is that you're learning how to play offense and defense because you'll learn to communicate in a way that'll get you more money. That's offense, putting up big numbers. That's offense. But then you'll play defense too because learning to negotiate will save you a lot of money. So I took my defensive strategy into the real world. I continued to live like a college kid as my income went up 
I had a roommate. I ate the same meals, ramen noodles, chicken, cans of chicken. My workout routine was the same. So there were other things we did in college that I kept doing. Our baseball coach made us run 110-yard sprints. We had to do it in 12 seconds. And then once we got there, we had to turn around and go backwards. So we, we jogged backwards 110 yards to get back to the finish line or the starting line, which was the end zone. And he said it was to ensure strength of balance in our legs. Made sense to me. And if you ran sprints with me tomorrow on the way back to the goal line, you'd, you'd see me turn around and go backwards. So the idea of semesters from school, it, it stuck with me. And how nice to have one class imposed on yourself as an adult that you know is going to aid your career and help you to make a lot of money. Sign me up for that all day. The cost to you, thanks to podcasts and YouTube, absolutely free. It's free to me now, too. That's why I think the Internet is the most amazing tool ever created for knowledge's sake. I think smart people are going to get smarter and, and dummies are going to get dumber, I'm afraid. But it doesn't get any cheaper than free. If you remember number two on my list of 40 lessons, I said the self-educated don't need credentials or validation. They're results-focused. When I was your age, I had to buy all the shit you get free now. So use it. The fact that I had to pay for it not 20 years ago, that's not me saying that I was walking five miles uphill in the snow. No, it was a fact. I had to buy the books and the entire series on negotiation if I wanted that skill set. I paid for seminars with poor audio quality that were recorded on cassette tapes. And I turned my car into a mobile university, just like the great Zig Ziglar said to do. And I rode around Houston, listening like my income and career success depended on it. Because it did. And at night, rather than run up bar tabs, I read books on negotiation. Think about it. One night at the bar could easily cost you 75 bucks. What I figured is that you could buy a life-changing CD set, sometimes cassette tapes, that could teach you how to make $1,000 a minute. And there's actually a little book called How to Make $1,000 a Minute. The biggest takeaway from the book is when someone tells you a figure, whether you're surprised or not, repeat the figure and do not say anything. When you really think about it, $1,000 a minute might not even be enough. That book was written in 1987. Nowadays, you're talking about multiple thousands of dollars a minute is what a good negotiation can mean to you in terms of dollars. Does that add up? Let's think about it. Let's say you're negotiating a large business deal or your compensation package. Do you think what's said in those few minutes on that phone call where you're discussing your pay do you think what's said in those few minutes can mean the difference between a, an $80,000 salary and a $92,000 salary? Or a $130,000 salary and a $144,000 salary? I promise you, in a five-minute call with your hiring manager or the person in HR you're negotiating with, you can earn well in excess of $1,000 a minute. But you first got to learn how to do it. So start when the amounts are small. It'll give you some practice. And don't feel stupid asking for a discount. Half the world would think you're an idiot for paying the asking price. There's no shame in offering someone less than their asking price. That's not a reflection of your being cheap or not being able to afford it. It's a business deal. 
Anyone who says they're insulted by an offer has a bunch of other issues, too. And since they've brought their emotions into the deal, well, maybe your feelings are a little hurt more than they're insulted. Now what do we do? Should we start over? (laughs) I appreciate the attempt at manipulation, but I've been doing this since I was a toddler. That's right, ma'am. I made a deal to get the best pampers on the shelf. Don't pay any mind to the smug and pretentious among us who poo-poo those who would ask for a discount. If they're going to be so cheap and asking for a discount, just imagine how bad they would be in this other area. I just don't want that kind of person renting from me. That is a faux sophisticate spouting snooty American bullshit. Those people think they're posh and high cultured, but they're not. They're idiots. Price tags weren't even a thing until late 19th century. What happened was shopkeepers no longer trusted their employees to negotiate on their behalf. So they put price tags on everything. Asking for a discount is fun. Negotiating is fun. And keep it light. I have a buddy who works at a Fortune 500 company high up in HR. He's responsible for negotiating salaries and compensation packages once the candidate has, once they've decided on a particular candidate. You want to know what he says is the biggest mistake people make? It's this. He says the candidate almost never makes a second counter. So let's say you're offered a salary of 120000 and you counter at 140000 They say, well, we, we can't do 140000 but what we can do is offer you 125 with unlimited vacation. Well, the candidate takes as gospel that they won't budge anymore. And so the candidate usually will accept the 125 offer. When what they should do, and this is straight from his mouth, the candidate should counter again. And if it's rejected by the company, you can always decide to take the previous offer anyway, the 125. But throw the 135 out there, or even better, stand firm with 140. And if they say they can't do it, be gone. You can always call the next morning and say, Mr. HR, I don't know what I was thinking. I would like to take the offer. So learn to negotiate. It will benefit many more aspects of your life and have fun with it. You'll start seeing bluffs everywhere. You'll see people overplay their hand a lot. Just remember, you're, negoti- you're not negotiating against someone. You're negotiating with them. In a good negotiation, everybody wins. So with the next thing you buy, you can say, hey, Mr. G, will you accept X? Where X is lower than the asking price. Do that and you're negotiating. And then what you want to do is replay the tapes, so to speak. What did you do well? What didn't you do well? What outcome were you expecting versus what did happen? What could you have done differently? Why would Pat Mahomes, quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, spend so much time looking at tapes of his performance on the field in order to get better, thereby improving his career, and you, young and ambitious, every reason in the world to do well, can't be bothered to replay the tapes of your performance in the marketplace? That's right. Your field is the marketplace. Why would Pat Mahomes' career be more important to him than yours is to you? It's not. So start acting like it. Sports teach us so much about preparation and learning from failure and getting better as a result. Okay, let me answer a few questions from listeners before we get out of here. The first one comes from Brett in New York City. He asks, what do you think of potential real estate opportunities during this market? Do you think it'll be more advantageous in a few months or years? Or are there maybe deals to be had now? I get this one quite a bit. I wish I knew what the real estate market was going to do. If I did, I would load up. (laughs) But I just don't know. And I never do. 
And I know that's not what anybody wants to hear, but I've been saying that since I started my real estate career in 2003. I do not speculate. I don't buy for appreciation. I buy for cash flow and tax benefits. Any increase in the value of real estate that I own is purely land yap. It is bonus to me. Who predicted COVID-19? Who predicted the bottom of the market in March, which was, it turned out to be March 23rd. Who could predict that? Nobody. And if they did, they got extremely lucky. But we'd be hearing from them now if they had done that and were not. You could go back to some of my previous episodes and look at the dates they aired, and you might think I had a crystal ball. And I could probably advertise that and say I knew what the hell was going to happen next. But I'd be lying. The future is unknowable. So I say take what the market gives you from a real estate perspective. Do not try to time it. We cannot predict the future. I'll give you some facts. Maybe this will help. Interest rates are still at historic lows right now. At the time of recording, June 29th, 2020, interest rates are at 3.3% on a 30-year fixed and 2.84% on a 15-year. That is very low. In the areas we target for investment in Houston, I've seen prices drop for the first time since 2008-2009. It's not a significant drop, only about ten dollars to $12,000 on a $150,000 house, but a drop nonetheless. When you're emailed every week of your life for 11 years, and for the first time you start to see sellers asking for less money for their house, it catches your attention. But I will say most investors I know do think that they can predict what's going to happen. And a lot of them think when breaks are no longer given by lenders because of COVID, that there's going to be a lot of foreclosures, which will enable them to scoop up real estate at cheaper prices. Hey, maybe they're right, but I'm, I'm the contrarian type. So when something like that becomes common knowledge, I tend to bet the other way. Also, I've heard stories of tenants who want to move. So what they're doing is getting out of leases. They're taking advantage of the COVID situation. So those are some facts for you. Let me get to Red's question in Richmond, Virginia. Red asks, do you think I should start a side hustle or work more hours at my main job? That's a good question. And I'm going to say it depends. Without knowing what your main job is or what your goals are, it's tough for me to say. Let's just assume since you listen to the podcast that you want to be financially independent and travel overseas. I think there's a big advantage to getting paid in big chunks, like a sales job where you're getting commissions or any sort of position where you're getting bonused. What that enables you to do is is restrict yourself. It becomes a little more easy to restrict yourself in terms of spending. So you could live on a percentage of your salary and then all the big chunks that come in when you get paid in those big chunks, they can, they can be saved and invested. It's a little harder to do when you're strictly hourly or strictly salary. And if you have a side hustle, I hope that it's one that forces you to acquire skills, not just make extra income. The real estate side hustle that I had greatly benefited me in my software career. I learned presentation skills, negotiation skills, relationship building, and so much more. Friends, next time we'll be back to our regular format where a guest will join me. I thank you for listening. I realize you could be doing anything in the world, but you chose to spend your time with me, and I am humbled.
If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. Thank you.